0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. It's Wednesday, May the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we enter the next phase of the coronavirus pandemic, with Ireland taking its first cautious moves towards easing restrictions on movement and on economic and social activity, we're checking in today to see what's happening elsewhere. Later on, you'll hear from our Berlin correspondent Derek Scally, on how Germany, which is widely seen as having coat better than most European countries with COVID-19, is facing the challenge now. But first of all, our London editor, Dennis Staunton, on what's been happening at Westminster and across the UK. Dennis Staunton. Very welcome back to the podcast. Haven't heard from you in a while. How are things in London?
0: Things are fine. Getting a little bit uh, livelier than they have been for the last seven weeks. Today is the first day back for a lot of people. But you've seen it really over the last uh, week or two A few cafes here or there reopening, a few shops that didn't have to close, but did close because they had no business, have started to reopen. And I noticed uh, just outside my window with the traffic, you you hear a bit of a hum of traffic again, which you hadn't. So so things are still very quiet and still most places are closed and most of the shops in the high street remain closed. But there is uh, the start of a return to some kind of activity.
1: And one of the things that always strikes me about London is it's so dependent upon the tube. And I can't imagine that a lot of people will be very enthusiastic about jamming
0: themselves into a train in the immediate future. No, well, London uh, Transport, they said this morning that since they started at six o'clock this morning, that uh, the, the volume of passengers is up about nine percent from what it was last week. Obviously, it was very low last week. What they've done is they're putting on more trains on the train services as well. So I think that although, uh, you know, there are more people on, they're still going to look pretty empty. And anybody who can avoid them is avoiding them. They also actually, in some tube stations, they ask you where you're going, why you're going. And if you're not going for some good reason, they tell you to get the bus.
1: Now, looking at the way these uh, changes were rolled out over the last few days, Boris Johnson's announcement on Sunday evening followed up with various documents in in the succeeding days it seemed like a bit of a dog's dinner to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's the plan itself, which is actually not that dissimilar to any of the other plans in Ireland and Germany or whatever. It's essentially that we're going to have a staged reopening, but every stage is conditional on the virus being suppressed and the R number. But what made it different was exactly, as you said, the way in which he rolled it out. So the fact that he uh, made this televised statement on Sunday night before the document was published. The document was published around lunchtime the following day. And in between, various ministers went on the radio and television, notably Dominic Raab, and seemed to get a bit confused as to what was in it. And so by the time he appeared in the House of Commons, everybody was bewildered as to what it was all about. And uh, Downing Street had a huge, you know, they got a huge audience. It was the biggest audience for decades. Uh, like it's the biggest, I think, since the the wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles in 1981. Some like 26 and a half million people uh, on Sunday night. So they were pleased with that. And I think uh, because the last time he did one of these televised addresses at the start of the lockdown, his ratings went way up. Uh, they thought this was going to be good for them. And who knows maybe it will. Uh, you know they're focus grouping everything like crazy. they're doing all of their polling internally, and they're you know they' they're checking how all these these messages are going down. But certainly the response uh, the immediate response, uh, not just from political commentators but from other people as well, seemed to be uh, we don't know exactly what these new rules are, and some of them don't seem to make sense.
1: I don't understand why they didn't have the documentation ready to be released simultaneously with the speech.
0: Well, because you have to publish that in Parliament, so that you know it's already he was uh, being a bit disrespectful to Parliament by making the announcement uh, outside Parliament rather than making it in Parliament. Now, prime ministers tend to do that, but they get a bit of a rap over the knuckles from the Speaker. But certainly, publishing a document before MPs have time to see it, that would really be regarded as a, a kind of a serious breach of protocol. So, the document had to be given to MPs first and uh, and then to the public. But it was the decision really just to make the announcement before that that uh, kind of confused matters.
1: Now, Parliament is a very different place at the moment um, from what it used to be because of social distancing, the very limited number of MPs in the actual House. Um, other ones are participating remotely. And also, very significantly, there's a different figure at the dispatch box as a different leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. And in, and in some ways, this this crisis seems made for somebody like Kirstarmer, and he's performed pretty well, it looks like to me.
0: He's performed very well. I mean, it's, I'm sure not the, uh, the introduction to the public that he necessarily might have chosen, but it, it does play to his strengths. And also just because the Commons Chamber is empty, they're going to be up again at noon today for Prime Minister's questions. Uh, the Prime Minister doesn't have one of the advantages that he usually has, which is that he usually has this baying crowd of his own MPs behind him to cheer him on. And instead, he's speaking into an empty chamber. And that suits the, uh, the sort of courtroom, uh, style that, uh, that Keir Starmer has rather better than it suits the, uh, the style of oratory that, uh, Boris Johnson has. Because Boris Johnson draws energy from, uh, from a crowd and from the audience. He plays to the audience and he's very sensitive to it. Whereas, uh, whereas Keir Starmer's approach has been, uh, simply to go through uh, the facts, you know, very, very minutely and forensically, as people keep saying.
1: And Boris Johnson comes across to me, maybe I'm being unfair, and obviously the British people don't see it like that, as a terrible spoofer. um, In terms of the quality of his responses to the questions from Keir Starmer, and remember, this is on a document which Keir Starmer had only had sight of 60 minutes beforehand, you wouldn't know that it was Keir Starmer who'd just seen it for the first time, and Boris Johnson, who presumably had been working over it for days, because his answers really weren't very impressive.
0: No, he's not good on detail, and that's, you know, it's kind of not what he does. What he does is that he uh, he tries to give an impression, and sometimes that's a, a useful thing to do. It was useful, obviously, in the Brexit referendum campaign, it was useful in the election. It's useful for cheering people up. But these, these are times when what people need is reassurance rather than uh, being, uh, being cheered up. And the reassurance they can get, they can only really get from somebody who does appear to know what he's up, what he's about. I think the other thing that uh, Keir has done pretty deftly is that he always introduces what he's saying by saying, look, I know this is very difficult and I really don't want to be critical here. And then he just is absolutely ruthless. But he has couched it in terms of kind of loyal opposition, that we, are, we all want the government to succeed. But he's obviously very alert to the political uh, dimension to all of this. And uh, you may have seen that uh, after Boris Johnson spoke to, uh, on television on uh, Sunday, Kirstamo was given opportunity to respond with a five-minute uh, address, which was broadcast on Monday, and the first half of it was very much going through the questions, uh, you know, the, the unanswered questions about the plan to unlock the lockdown. But the second part of it was to say we can't go back to the status quo ante after this thing is over. We can't just clap the NHS workers uh, every Thursday evening and then not fund them properly, not treat them properly afterwards. So when this is over, we have to talk about the kind of society that we want. So he, he pivoted very, uh, I thought, cleverly uh, into the message that he wants to present as to what the Labour Party represents.
1: And given that Boris Johnson has a, a cast iron majority of, of 80 seats or so, so there's no prospect of him going anywhere um, for the next uh, for the next few years, presumably the key debate, no matter what Labour try and make it is going to be within the conservative party and there must be some differences within the party in terms of what rebuilding the economy is going to look like when when you get through this.
0: Yeah, there are some tensions. I mean, you know, obviously because there are very few MPs in parliament. They can't plot in the usual way. But uh, but the fact that they're all so separated from one another also means that the whips don't necessarily know exactly what's going on in terms of dissent. But there is there are various views inside the Conservative Party. Some share the view of uh, the Prime Minister and of the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, that the, the priority must be to make sure you don't take any risks where the virus is concerned and that the uh, if the economy has to wait for another few weeks to get back up and running, then that's OK, we'll work out. how to pay for that later. Uh, But there are quite a few Conservatives who really just fear that with each week that passes, more of these businesses are just not going to come back into business, and the risk being taken with the economy is just too great. And there is another fear, of course, which is that the cost of all these measures, which is enormous. Uh, just the cost, for example, of paying eighty percent of people's wages, which has been taken up by seven and a half million people, nearly a million businesses. You know that's going to carry on for another few months, and that's costing something like eight billion a month, or maybe more. And so, uh, you know, if you're going to do all of that and you're going to have less tax coming in because nobody's paying VAT, they've all got tax holidays, people are earning less, then are you going to be able to afford all of these big ticket items that you went to the country on? Or indeed, are you going to even be able to keep your promises? of not putting up income tax, not putting up VAT, and, uh, you know, not putting up national insurance. That's the triple lock of uh, of tax promises that the Tories, uh, you know, have committed to at all of the most recent elections, including the one in December. And so there is certainly some unrest on the Conservative backbenches. I think what Labour will probably hope would be that uh, there is a certain pattern in British politics, which is that the British electorate, I think, quite unusually actually among European electorates that at a certain moment they often just make up their minds about a government and they don't change it. So if you think of Black Wednesday in 1992, John Major was elected. Uh, he won that election rather unexpectedly in April of 1992. And in September, you had this crisis over the European um, monetary system and the exchange rate mechanism. And you had this catastrophe. And uh, from that moment, uh, you saw the polls just twiff, uh you know a twist and immediately from then on the conservatives were always behind in the polls and uh, and that uh, then a few years later you had 1997 tony blair was al- already the leader of the labor party in uh, 1992 he was able to benefit from all of this and to slowly build his own credibility and the credibility of his own party to win again in 97 what labor will be hoping is that this is uh, 1993 and uh, 2024 when the election comes will be 1997. And that actually, although the Conservatives are doing quite well in the polls so far, like most incumbent governments are, and Boris Johnson remains popular, that there has been for the first time a poll in the last day or so which showed the uh, personal ratings, the favorability rating of Keir Starmer, just ahead of that of uh, Boris Johnson. Both of them rated very highly. But the fact is that they would see some little glimmer of hope, perhaps, that when the post-mortem interval of this is done, that actually maybe the government will emerge as a picture of incompetence and that the public might just make up their minds about it. And the
1: post-mortem might well reveal that. M- mind you, we're still to an extent in the midst of this. And one of the things I think we've seen in other countries, um, including Ireland and Italy, is that this extricating oneself from lockdown is a, an awful lot more complicated than going into lockdown. It's raises a lot more questions for governments, a lot more potential for conflict of interest between different sectors of society and indeed different regions of a country. And, you know, we're starting to see that in the UK, for example, with divergence between the devolved administrations in in Edinburgh, uh, Belfast and Cardiff and London. Um, And it's just generally messier and there's more scope for political screw up
0: yeah i think it is and also the other thing is that actually while we're in lockdown everything is frozen and you actually it's only when the lockdown lifts that you'll see the true extent of the economic damage that you really will see whether uh you know all those shops are going to reopen whether uh you know whether they can or not and actually then as the months go by what the level of unemployment is how much uh, it's going to cost people. But the point that you make about the devolved administrations is, I think, an important one, because the contrast that people have seen here, and particularly people north of the border in Scotland, is between the performance of Boris Johnson, which has seemed uncertain, and the performance of Nicholas Sturgeon. And Nicholas Sturgeon has got a gift uh, that not all politicians have of being able to speak very clearly and deliver a very clear message, but yet uh, treating the people as if they are intelligent, and so they so that uh the people. Uh, have liked what they've seen of her. And of course, what she has been able to do is to also use this as uh, as something which reinforces her message that Scotland is a separate place, that it can do its own thing better, uh, that it's safer and better to be following their rules rather than following rules that are coming from a parliament in Westminster that is perhaps uh, going in the wrong direction. And so this has all been good. And I think from the point of view of nationalists in Scotland and in Wales as well, And what you did see, really, once this document was published, was that Boris Johnson's writ only ran to the border with uh, Wales and Scotland. Now, part of that is obviously that health and education and various other uh, issues and policies are devolved to the devolved administrations. But nonetheless, uh, what a unionist might hope would be that these devolved administrations would want to follow the same kind of guidance, that the bigger... More well-resourced government in uh, in London would would suggest.
1: How does Brexit fit into all of this? The clock is ticking ever louder towards uh, June is not far away, and we are told that that is the stage at which, if an extension is going to be discussed, implemented, agreed, or or whatever that that has to happen um, by the end of June, it doesn't look very likely at the moment.
0: No, and it's uh, and I think Brexit is playing in, uh, in an unexpected way, certainly a way that's been unexpected to me. And currently, the thinking in Downing Street is that actually uh, COVID-19 makes it more urgent that Britain should leave on time uh, all of the EU rules, and so there should be no extension to the transition. And the reason they say, one of the reasons, is that you're going to have a new EU budget negotiated over the next few months, It will have to be quite a big one to take account of uh, extra spending to deal with this crisis. Britain won't be at the table negotiating this, but it would still have to pay. Because, I mean, if you talk to the Europeans, to the Barnier's people, they'll say, well, if they do want to transition, there are two issues. One is, what's the date and what's the size of the lump sum? And that's all. Now, uh, what Britain feels, or what Downing Street feels, is that actually... If you did tie yourself into them, into Europe for another couple of years, you're handing over all this money for something that you're not shaping in any way. And then they also think that maybe they're going to have to spend a lot of money in such a way that would be in breach of EU state aid rules. And that uh, that's another reason to get out. And then the third reason is they say, look, this thing is going to be so disruptive, the coronavirus, that actually a little bit more disruption at the same time is possibly better than having one disruption now and then in a couple of years time, having to change to new rules again, uh, because of your relationship with the European Union. Now, again, as we were saying, everything might look different once the lockdown is actually lifted. And so we're now talking in the middle of May, and by the middle of June, I mean, the middle of May feels very different from the middle of April, which felt likewise very different from the middle of March. And so the middle of June, things may look different and feel different. But certainly the expectation, both in London and in Brussels, is that Britain will not ask for an extension Nobody will offer them an extension, there will not be an extension, and that the timetable will be the one that we have, and they'll either do a deal towards the end of the year or they won't.
1: I've heard a further point made, I think it was by James Forsyth and The Spectator, who would have some insight into Tory party thinking, obviously, um, which was that the, the gap between the two sides on the really fundamental principles, the, the, the level playing pitch and how that level playing pitch would be adjudicated principles – is so deep that the Brit, certainly on the British side, they don't see the prospect of being able to sort it out by adding another twelve months into the end of twenty twenty one or something like that. It's not that there's niggly elements of getting the sums and the bills exactly right on fishery or whatever it might be. It's so profound that they need to have the clean break in 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 London's view.
0: Yeah, maybe I, th- I think though that there are some uh, in Brussels who would say that you know the that the European demand for the level playing field for all they wanted on the level playing field is a maximalist one and that actually uh, maybe they would have to think about a less ambitious arrangement than, uh, than, than previously. So I mean, I think that there's a deal. I think both sides want a deal. Actually, I think they still want a deal. Uh, but they're probably both looking at a less ambitious one than the one that uh, the great special partnership we were talking about for a few years.
1: We'll see. We'll stick, leave it there for the moment. Thanks very much indeed for joining us, Dennis. Uh, stick with us. We'll be joined in a moment by Derek Scully.
2: Derek, what is life like in Berlin this week? Life is pretty much, for a foreign correspondent, you're sort of a sole trader, you're used to doing things on your own. And um, I think the last weeks of lockdown have probably hit me less than other people. Uh, I'm going out to less events, fewer press conferences, um, and yeah, the, co- the sort of collegiality among correspondents has certainly dropped back, at least in person. But life in general is pretty much really as it's always been. I probably lead a very boring life that I haven't really noticed the difference. But, um, yeah, we don't, there isn't quite the same pub culture that you have in Ireland. Um, Socialising takes place on other levels as well. So uh, the pub isn't always the default option. So having that fall away isn't perhaps quite the blow it has been for many people in Ireland. Lots of walks. Um, But, yeah, the same, I think, as most people going into supermarkets with face masks, as is the norm here now, and feeling a slight feeling of paranoia and then concerned that that feeling of paranoia is paranoid. Um, and uh, and all sorts of things. So probably overthinking it.
1: But can you? I mean, if you wanted to go to a bar, can you go to a bar? Can you go to a cafe? Can you get your hair cut?
2: Uh, I have a hairdresser's appointment in a week's time, so two weeks after they've reopened. They reopened last week, but the queue is such, the waiting time is so great that I'm getting an appointment two weeks later. German efficiency. Um, you can go to a cafe and the restaurants and pick up things to go, but you can't actually stay in the premises. Um bakeries stayed open all the time. Bread is, uh, is an essential foodstuff in Germany. And um, yeah, so supermarkets, drugstores are controlling the entrance and exit of, of customers. Um, so it's pretty much what's happening elsewhere in Europe. Um, I haven't really, I think Germany sort of went down the middle. It didn't go excessively. It wasn't telling people, you didn't have to leave home with a piece of paper saying what you were doing. Like in France, uh, children weren't confined to the home as in Spain. Um, but uh, we did get in earlier, I think, because of the the, the spread of the virus. We were probably two or three weeks. We've consistently been about two or three weeks, um, probably about a month ahead of Ireland, uh, definitely ahead of the UK.
1: And much more successful outcomes, I think it's fair to say at this stage, than, than the UK, for example, and and also than Ireland in terms of uh, mortality per 100,000 of the population. Germany has had a pretty good report card on this. And in the early weeks uh, in as we went through March and into April, a lot of people have signed that to the efficiency of the health service, that the the flexibility of the system of federal government, which allowed um, services to react faster than a centralised service like that, the NHS, for example. Is federalism a success, or is federalism at a certain point as we move out of this lockdown phase? Could federalism be more of a hindrance or at least a, a complicating factor?
2: What I would say is Germans are very nervous about being held up as the model in Europe because they know from history that people usually build up Germany uh, and then like to knock them down again and say, oh, you're not so high and mighty after all, even though they weren't the ones claiming they were. So many German doctors I've said have said, yes, things have worked well. It's been a mixture of uh, structure and luck. But I think in a situation like this, there is a certain amount of luck that you do make yourself. And Germany is a decentralized country and they do spend quite a lot on health care. And unlike other countries, that seem to spend it well. Um, You know, 15% of my pay packet goes on um, healthcare, half of that is paid for, uh, by my employer and the other half is paid for by me. But that's quite a whack of money every month. And, um, that's the same for everyone. So that's an awful lot of money going in. Then the money doesn't just go into one pot here in Berlin and is then distributed. It, it's, it's kept decentral. And, um, every federal state here, and there's 16 of them, they all have the university clinics. They all have their centres of excellence. They all have their health ministers. They all have their reacting to the situation at the, on the on the ground. And I mean, even in the case of research, there's a we have I have a story in uh, in Wednesday's Irish Times about uh, you know the the head of virology epidemiology here in Berlin uh, is doing his own research, and then there's another guy across uh, in in Bonn, and there's other people all over the country all competing for the best results for the best research. And I think that's uh, an ode to uh, to decentralization. Yes, it does make things messy when things were being locked down. It was very hard to bring 16 federal states on board. I mean, Germany is a bit like a minor, a small EU. You know, got all sorts of political agendas and all sorts of personalities of these federal state leaders. Um, but Merkel seemed to bring things pretty much uh, under one hat on the way in things are a bit messy on the on the on the loosening of the lockdown again the impatience is huge and each federal state leader wants to be seen as particularly progressive Um, and some have argued that they're going a little bit too fast so the the loosening is probably a bit more complicated than the lockdown itself and um, there have been protests around the country so germany isn't really germany is a model for germany i think um, everyone can learn from everyone in this um, but, yeah, I mean, 7,000, less than 8,000 deaths, considering a population of 82 million, it is quite an achievement. Um, and, but to be fair, even the Germans are the first to say we won't know how this looks until the end.
1: So what are the different factors that, uh, that are driving different decisions being made in different states in Germany then?
2: Um, you've got economic factors. What is the economic um, leading issue in certain states or car building? Company, uh, certain states are car building uh, states. So uh, Lower Saxony has got Volkswagen, Baden-Württemberg down the south has um, Daimler, Mercedes, and uh, Bavaria's BMW. So those car companies are very much driving the agenda. They pay about a fifth of uh, our Germany's taxes. So they really feel what we want uh, has to be included in the mix and has to be prioritized. Other countries, northern Germany, are tourist destinations. So they want their tourists back as quickly as possible. So they're interested in mobility. So every federal state has its own economic priorities, but every federal state also has its own um, uh pandemic state i mean bavaria has been very hard hit uh compared to other places people would say that's because it's closer to italy and austria and um, it's now pushing to open the borders um because it, it is also a huge tourist uh destination so you've got all these factors and um it's it's just a matter of balancing all that with 16 federal states it's hardly easy um but um there is huge autonomy. Health is a, a federal state issue. It isn't a matter for federal government. The federal government has an oversight role, but Merkel has very much um, had to take a back seat on this.
1: And we know from our own experience here in Ireland, and I think in other countries, it's a it's a big issue as well, is that the having an efficient um, testing, tracking and tracing system is seen as being crucial to being able to reopen parts of the economy. What kind of state is that in Germany?
2: Again, it's it's very varied depending on where you are. Um, Bavaria says it's developing a, a track. It, all of Germany has had a very early tracking and tracing. Starting in um, January, they had the first tests. And then in February, they started the tracking and tracing. So they got in early and they've maintained that. Um, various federal states, including Bavaria, are coming up with their own randomized um, antibodies tests. So they just want to see how far... How distributed in the population is this, particularly among asymptomatic people? Um, There's been a study in Western Germany, um, one of the leading epidemiologists, where he said They studied an outbreak in a small town. It was an enclosed sort of a a perfect study uh, subject. Uh, About 400 people were at a carnival uh, pre-Lenten party in Western Germany. Uh, Lots of them got uh, COVID-19. They went straight to the town. They tested everyone. And according to their preliminary results, the rate of infection was actually 10 times what they claim um, because so many people carry um, COVID-19 but carry no symptoms. So there's various uh, various centers of excellence and various states doing their own thing. But the point is that it all feeds into one. Um, what they do do is they share all their knowledge. And so Germany has all of these people acting independently of each other, but then they share their knowledge. And we've seen sort of a high level of, um, we have the high level of knowledge, but then the high level of um, healthcare structures in place that they can, if, if the healthcare researchers say, yes, we have to do this, the, the healthcare system is in a position to act decentrally quickly to do whatever they say, whether it's um, tracking and tracing or antibodies tests.
1: I mean, obviously, we're all amateur epidemiologists now. And I was very taken by your piece today about these two rock star epidemiologists in the in Germany who have differing views um, of what's actually going on. And this this question of the antibody test and what it might reveal about the real spread of COVID-19 within the population as a whole, obviously, is kind of crucial. It's key, isn't it? Because if, as was suggested by the test you mentioned, that there's a much higher spread, well, then that means that the mortality rate is lower and a whole bunch of other factors come into play.
2: Yeah, the issue is... um What is the role of political leadership here? And I think that's key. The the role of political leadership is we pay them to study all of this. We pay them to grapple with this. And we hope that they will uh, synthesize all that and come out with um, sensible solutions. Um, The trouble is when you have a cacophony of 16 federal state leaders plus a chancellor... Um, And all of them are politicians with an eye on uh, their political profile, if that's sustainable. And to date, it is really held together. But what we are seeing is, you know, fraying of patience, fraying of trust. Um, You know, every country has a a small minority of people who believe the government doesn't know what it's doing. You know, it's an out of touch elite. And we're starting to see that in Germany. I mean, this is a country that has had um, two dictatorships in the 20th century. And it's been very interesting to watch you know, the goody, two-shoes, cliche, German, button-down Germans, there have been huge growing uh, protests against this. So these are people who aren't interested in the science, aren't interested in weighing up, you know, economic and health interests. They're just going on the streets claiming that their fundamental human right, you know, right of assembly and other rights are being trampled on uh, by this. So um, I was at one of them uh, two weeks ago and, you know, these people are pulling, it, these, this movement is pulling in everything from, left wing um left wing radicals to right far right extremists and um, we've got the qanon movement in there vast apparent that the whole world is a conspiracy theory uh, so they're they're pulling in all sorts of wackos and all of them are based on what what unites them is they are completely they have absolutely no trust in uh, the government and they believe that as in the past people's human rights are being trampled on. So um, while that is an extreme fringe movement at the moment, politicians this week in Germany, are taking note of it. And they're saying, uh, you know, we've seen in the past there's been a, a movement called Pegida, which is opposed to um, my in, inward migration from largely Muslim countries. We have the Alternative for Deutschland, which is a far-right movement, which is the largest opposition party. So people in Germany, polit- particularly politicians in Germany, are very mindful of public opinion now in ways they wouldn't have been in the past. People aren't as easily led as in the past. Social media offers all sorts of... Uh, rabbit holes down which people can disappear, but also organise. So we're going to see, I'd say the next week or two, things are going to get very awkward because they have to, on the one hand, keep the lid on this. But on the other hand, they have to be mindful of patients is running out and people can be infected by conspiracy theories long before COVID-19.
1: Does that mean there's likely to be stronger resistance in Germany than maybe elsewhere to some of the technological solutions which have been proposed? I particularly, you know, location tracking apps which, which which record who you come into contact with, which which might be very useful when it comes to tracing contacts for people who who test positive. Are they likely to be resisted
2: more strongly in Germany? Um, what, what, what was interesting, they did have a plan for an app with centralised storage of data, and that caused uproar. Again, when you have a country with two dictatorships in its past and Stasi and Gestapo and all of that, people are very wary of um, state surveillance. Um, so what happened is at the last minute, the health ministry said, okay, we will take the alternative model, which will store all the information decentrally on people's phones, with um, ID keys that will change regularly. And only if uh, there will be a central server, but only as a sort of a clearinghouse, so that if somebody is tested positive who has the app, anyone who spent any time or anyone whose phone spent time near his phone Will then get a, a, an indicator from a central server, but the central server won't know who is who. So that app is being rolled out at the moment. So they are trying to, on the one hand, use the technology available, but on the other hand, be mindful of people's privacy concerns. Again, the conspiracy theorists and the protests, there are still a small, I mean, it was 10,000 people in Stuttgart at the weekend. Um, protesting, but you know, Stuttgart is quite a conservative part of the world, and 10,000 people can't be dismissed. So, Merkel's spokesman was at pains yesterday to say, well, 10,000 people here and 5,000 in Berlin at the weekend um, is nothing compared to, you know, the 80 plus million people who are ad- adhering to government requests to stay at home. But you can't dismiss it at the same time.
1: And it's fair to say, isn't it, that Merkel herself has had a pretty good war, <laughs> if you can characterize it as such
2: yes she has i mean she um she is a scientist and she knows she knows but she knows her limits she knows her scientific knowledge is, uh, and her way of working is 30 years old she isn't going to play the amateur scientist like some heads of uh, state and um she has been very very sensible and people are very glad to have her um i think um it's it's yeah people are already wondering about the time after merkel because she does have a a bad habit if you can call it that of waiting and waiting and waiting before she makes a decision. But um, yeah, as so often, the fastest, even in a pandemic, sometimes the quickest decision isn't always the best one, but uh, finding the best solution and sticking to it seems to be.
1: And finally, Derek, I mean, we're looking ahead now over the next 12 months, 18 months, two years to what? Some are predicting a sort of an apocalyptic economic landscape, not just in Germany, not just in Ireland, but across the world and across the EU. And that, again, has raised questions of what economic and fiscal policy should be to kind of get us through this as well as we can. What's where's the debate at in Germany about whether new fiscal instruments are needed across the EU and is there still the very strong resistance we've seen in the past to um to, to approaching those things in an EU-wide manner?
2: Well, um what's been interesting in this um in this crisis is Germany has a reputation of sort of being anti-Keynesian, it wants to keep the state out. It doesn't believe in stimulus, it's more a fan of of austerity. That was very much the perception in Ireland during uh, the euro crisis we felt we got the, the 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 sharp end of that economic ideology so at odds so alien to many many uh, much of it, the economic thinking in ireland but what's been interesting in this crisis is how quickly germany has literally opened up the taps it has mo- it has mobilized every source of liquidity it has whether it's taxpayers money whether it's Public banks that can borrow money at um, sovereign rates, as in very cheaply. It has literally turned on every tap in the house to keep money flowing. It is throwing money at industry, it is providing helicopter money for businesses. It has done everything it can, which is completely at odds with what people would say Germany does, that the the German state is supposed to be under the supposed German doctrine at arm's length to all of this. The 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 answer I always hear in Germany is, no, we don't believe in doing it willy-nilly. We believe in doing it when it is necessary. And they think that sometimes too much of the Keynesian approach is is almost like pumping money into companies that need to die anyway. You know, you you need to prune back to make maximize the use of taxpayers' money. But uh, what's interesting now is Germany has turned on the liquidity taps. It is generating huge debt, but it is also saying, well, we're facing the worst economic crisis since 1945, so you do everything you can. But what would be really interesting is Germany takes over the, the um, rotating presidency of the European Council of the EU, in July so it will be Angela Merkel's probably her political um, swan song to actually try and pro- impose some sort of a of a coherence on this because as you say what we've seen to date is Italy and southern European countries and Ireland it should be saying saying we need to pool sovereignty we need to use the eu's combined firepower to borrow as much money as cheaply as possible to counteract this uh, Germany northern Europe um other countries have said hang on well we're not just going to you know get our bank to issue you with a checkbook and you can write checks and they'll be drawn on our account. We want to have some control over this. And Angela Merkel has already signaled, look, this is the old argument. We've been having this since the start of the EU. Um, How do we complete um, the monetary union? Because we um, we can't have southern europe making demands that northern europe doesn't want to co-finance. So what she's been saying is we just we're kind of maybe covid-19 is the point we've reached the end of the road. We either have to decide we're either all in or we're not. And that will be interesting because otherwise Italy can call as much as it demand as much as it wants for um, liability from countries like or pool liability on sovereign borrowing from countries like Germany and Northern Europe. But they say unless we unless the EU has some oversight over your budgets, we're not going to do that. So each side will probably have to give a bit, or nobody's going to get anything. And this is all going to happen under Germany's presidency of the EU, uh, starting in July. So interesting times ahead.
1: Yes, indeed. So listen, Derek, uh, look forward to your haircut. I think we're all very envious of you. Um, We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks to Derek and to Dennis for joining us today. Thanks also to our engineer, JJ Vernon, and our producer, Suzanne Brennan. If you'd like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.